0: I'm okay. a All right. Do we have it now? Yes, we do. We are grateful that you're here today, that we could worship together, and how good God has been with us. Many of you know Jim Pence. Jim, would you and Laurel stand up just real quick so people know who we're talking about here? Great. They had been friends for a long time and we're so thankful, and God has used them in so many different ways. Uh, we asked, you know, Jim if he would kind of write something, just something a little bit but tells what he does. So eight pages later, he told us a little bit of what he'd been doing. Actually, that's the short version. We want, A lot of people wanted to do the long version, but it was nine hours. We thought, that's just a little bit too much, Jim. So I'm going to make it real short. Okay, Jim's a really good guy. We shall pray. <laughs> Actually, we'll do it this way. Uh, let me just... I, we wrote this up. Jim Pence is a former pastor who's now a full time writer and speaker. Uh, Jim turned to writing in 1988 as a helpful means of expression after the death of his baby daughter, Michelle. Since a time, he's written nine books, including Terror by Night. Um, Martin, my son, I think, is here. Martin, you here? Yeah. Did you not read that book? And did it? The Angel. Didn't he put that on an, an Amazon, I think? He did a good review, and we pumped it up by doing it 148 times, saying it's terrific, it's terrific, it's terrific. <laughs> it is. He's a good writer. Anyways, this other one that's interesting here, including Terror by Night. Some of you remember this story when it happened. It was co-author of Terry Caffey. Terror by Night tells the painful yet compelling story of how Terry Caffey found God's peace and strength following horrific home invasion that left his wife and two sons dead and his 16-year-old daughter implicated in the crime. James followed up Terror by Night by More God, the story of Nate Little, and a young surfer who survived a massive traumatic brain injury. Jim's new youth-adult novel called Friendly Revenge will be released in Maine and Mountain View Books. Also as a chalk artist, vocalist, speaker, Jim has shared Christ across the United States through music, art, appearing in venues as large as the Anaheim Convention Center, as small as a family living room. Jim often takes his art and music into prisons where he's able to share the grace of God with a frequently overlooked and rejected people. Jim and his wife, Laurel, will celebrate their 36th wedding anniversary this June. They have two grown children, Chris and Charlene, and one granddaughter, Elena and Michelle. So, Jim, we're really glad you're here, and we feel like God's called you to hear to be able to bring the word to us. So if you would come, you already have your thing. So you're... I'm, I'm so. Memorex.
1: Hello. I've got to turn it on. Do I have some? There we go. There we I can go. hear myself. You're so, you, All right. Can you hear me now? now? Also, how many black belts do you have in karate? Uh, only Well, fourth degree, but only one belt. Oh. So, And I retire, I retired about a year and a half ago, I figured. Yeah. I turned 60 last year. said, okay, it's enough. It's time for young guys to... <laughs> to do this. When my knee and my, my hip started saying, I really don't like you doing this anymore, I decided to listen. Well, thank you for that introduction, Carl. I, I would be, I, I would say, uh, it's very embarrassing if I hadn't written it myself. But uh, <laughs> he, he, he emailed me, said, you know, let us write up a, well, he, in all fairness, he said, write up a paragraph. Uh, and my bio on my website's about a page and a half long, and that's because. Because I know you. Yeah, I do a lot of different things, and that's that's always one of the challenges when you're trying to write a bio. And then somebody says, "Well, well, tell us everything you do in a paragraph." Well, yeah, I, I can't very well, but that's uh, you know uh, that's okay. It's a delight to be here. Uh, we, we have, uh, our heart has been with you from the moment you started this church and uh, I do remember last time I spoke here, uh, somehow, even though we had already been here three times, I managed to miss my turn off off of the George Bush turnpike and when I realized that I'd missed my turn off, I was at the Dallas North Tollway. Uh, and so we turned around and I was totally befuddled, couldn't figure out. Where I was supposed to turn off to get here as fast as possible, and uh, we finally made it about a minute before the the service was supposed to start, and and Glary and others were planning, you know, drawing straws as to who was going to have to give the message uh, if um, you know if I didn't get there. But uh, but God got us here, and that uh, you yeah, know that was what was important. I've got a little test. I don't usually begin a uh, a message with. I don't usually use PowerPoint, as a matter of fact. I'm very old school. Uh, I occasionally, you know, will do slides. We're, our, we, our church is without a pastor right now, so I'm filling in twice a month there. And I will put together a PowerPoint because so many of the younger families kind of expect that. And then I get going and I forget to use it. So uh, I, I just get to the point where, you know, I know. But I, I have a quiz this morning. And uh, let's see, how do I, is it on? This is on, it says on, there it is. Ah, what is your brand? Uh, brand is a catchword that has become very popular in recent years. In fact, as an author, you, you hear it ad nauseum because the publishers nowadays don't just want somebody to write books. They want somebody uh, that they can market. In fact, they, when you come uh, with a book proposal, they expect you to come with a pre-made audience. They want you to have a blog with thousands and thousands of readers, and you're supposed to have 10,000 Facebook followers, Twitter followers. Uh, you, know, you name it, they expect you to have it. And they also want you to have a brand. They want you to have a, a tagline. They want you to be a recognizable, marketable figure. Uh, and it drives most writers crazy because that's not, as a rule, what we're about. But uh, branding is important. And so here's a, qui- uh, a quick quiz. Feel free to call out the answer when you recognize the image. Uh, McDonald's. Okay, it, did, it didn't take long to figure out. Uh, if you're young, it's a place you love to go. If it's a parent, if you're a parent of young children, it's generally a place you dread. Okay, there's another one. Nike. Nike. Okay. Apple. Incidentally, even if you don't have these products, you know them, don't you? Uh, I, oh, there's another one, I think it's just toggling through without me doing anything here, so. Now Starbucks, that's, oh, you're doing it, thank you, okay, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I <don't, all> right, <laughs> like I said, I'm, uh, that, that's not my thing, okay, we can go on to the next one, all right, Toyota, all right, here's one for the kids, PlayStation, yeah, yeah, I wanted to throw you a curve in there, and uh, I believe, <laughs> I believe that was the last one. Uh, Ah, question mark. Okay, what is your brand? Uh, you know, brands not only are logos, sometimes they're, they're phrases. Uh, you'll show your age if you know this one. Where's the beef? Wendy's. Wendy's. If you're young, you won't know that. Have it your way. You've got to be really old, yeah. Burger King. Uh, you're in good hands. Allstate. Allstate. There are so many ways that companies communicate who they are what they stand for, and what they're all about, and we call that branding. My question to you and me today is, what is your brand? As a Christian, you have a brand, whether or not you know it. The question is, what is it? I'm going to be going to a lot of passages this morning, and, uh, but, but our anchor is going to be in, in uh, John chapter 13, gospel. 34, verse 34 and 35, this is Last Supper. Jesus is together with his disciples for one last meal together, a very significant time. Of course, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here every week and something we remember. So they're in that upper room. And Jesus has been doing quite a bit in terms of talking to them and communicating, and we're going to come back and, and look at one of those things in a moment. But he says in verse 34, well, let me pick it up from verse 33 just to, just to get the, the context. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I now tell you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, I'm going to give you your brand before I leave. I'm going to give it to you in the form of a new commandment. That command is love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this, all men, all people, everywhere will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I'm going to make three observations on that this morning. First of all, by way of question, how was this a new commandment? The concept of love was not new. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. Leviticus, uh, in, in Leviticus, Moses writes, love your neighbor as yourself. He also tells them to love God. But, you know, that that carries through the Old Testament. And you go to the Gospels, and and what happens when, when somebody asks Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? What does he say? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. So the concept of love was not new. The concept of even loving strangers was not new. You go back again to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you're going to see commands to love the strangers, love the aliens, love people who were not part of your group, love people who have come in from the outside. He said you were were aliens in Egypt, so you need to love the aliens. So in, in that sense, it's not new. And we're going to see in just a moment how it is new. But Jesus does not present it as an option. He doesn't say, you know, it would be a really good thing if you loved one another. He does not say, I suggest that you consider loving one another because your lives will be a whole lot more peaceful if you do that. He presents it as a commandment. He says a new commandment, not necessarily new in chronology, the idea is fresh. He says, I'm presenting you a new command. Now, again, this is at the Lord's Supper. The whole concept of the new covenant is, is being dealt with there. And it's very possible Jesus was even thinking in terms of the new covenant here. That, you know, the, the old covenant was signified by the law, the Ten Commandments. The new covenant is signified by a different commandment. Love one another. So the first thing I want to observe about this text. That new commandment, love one another, is not optional. It is not something that we exercise simply because we feel like it. It is not something that we do just because it's a good idea. We are expected as the people of God to love one another now how is this new how is it fresh well that's I think what Jesus gets at in the next verse or the next part of the verse he says as I have loved you so you must love one another now when we read that we read Jesus died for us we should lay down our lives for one another he 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 died for us we should be willing to give our lives for one another that's the understanding even that the new testament picks up but i i doubt that the disciples really understood that at that time because their very reaction to the cross showed they really didn't at that point have a clue what was going on so what is Jesus referring to when he says, As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. Well, if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, and I'm not going to read it because it's a, a long text, but, but you're familiar with it. They arrive in the upper room. And as they get to the upper room, there is kind of a, a tension among the disciples because prior to this they have been arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they get there, and when they, when they get into that upper room, nobody wants to wash anybody's feet. In the culture of that day, you would get together, or you'd go to a house or visit. Somebody would be there. Usually the, the lowest servant in the house would be there to wash your feet. Because you're walking on dirt roads, your feet are dirty, they recline to eat. It's not real pleasant to have dirty feet in your face. And so a normal custom is that the feet should be washed. And again, it it was kind of a degrading thing, at least in the minds of the disciples. I don't want to do that. And, you know, even... It's uncomfortable even for us. I remember several years back, I was on staff at First Baptist Dallas uh, with their prison ministry. And uh, we had a missions director who, in his missionary experience, he'd forgotten more about missions than I will ever know. Uh, he had been on the mission field when Idi Amin came to power in Uganda, that, Uganda. That's where he was. And he and his wife saw things that just curl your hair. But uh, he led a group of missionary pastors. At, at that time, First Baptist Dallas had a bunch of mission churches all over the Metroplex. And, and uh, we got together once a month for a, a dinner with the missionary pastors, a luncheon, and, and we'd just talk about what was going on. And, and one day he said, I want to do something. And we, so you know, he had us all go into another room. And he had us you know take off our shoes. And he washed our feet. And I'm going to be very honest, I I was really uncomfortable. And I was uncomfortable, not because somebody was washing my feet, although it was a strange experience, you know, unless you've come out of a tradition where that's, that's something that they do all the time. It just, it felt strange. But what was most uncomfortable to me was at that moment, you know, this man who I held on a pedestal, just because of who he was and what he'd done. He was bowing down and washing my feet. And I did not feel worthy of that. So can you imagine being one of the 12 and having walked with Jesus for three years, seeing everything that he had done? And now you're at this crisis moment and everybody's standing around saying, I'm not going to wash anybody's feet. And Jesus takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around himself. And he goes from disciple to disciple to disciple and washes their feet. I can only imagine, well, you know, you, you, again, you know Peter's reaction. Peter said, Uh uh-uh, uh, you're not going to do that. You'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, well, if I don't, then you don't have any part with me. And then Peter, in true Petrine fashion, says, okay, let's go the whole route. Give me a bath. But how uncomfortable it was for the Master, for his disciples, as they, he went around and washed all of their feet. Now, I'm going to pick up at the end of that story. It's verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on, his, uh, put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. When Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. At that particular moment, I believe the disciples, again, they didn't fully understand the cross. They didn't understand what was coming. Eventually they would, and they would make the connection. But at that moment, the most profound illustration to them would have been what Jesus had just done. Because the Lord, the Messiah, the King who was going to bring the kingdom, had just humbled himself, and wash their feet. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so love one another. Now, does that mean, okay? well, we need to take up foot washing? No, I don't think that's necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily a bad practice, but I don't think that's the idea. I'm going to, I don't think I'll even get through all of these verses, but most of the time when, when we think of, of love we, or when we're reading the New Testament, we'll see different snippets of passages that are telling us to love one another. But we tend to see them in isolation. I'm going to move very quickly. If you want to write the references down and look up at them later. I just want to pull out a few of the things that I think expand on what Jesus just said to the disciples. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to go quickly. First one is book of Romans. Chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Grace redeemer. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual... Fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. And you're going to be taking up an offering. You're right after the service. Share. Author of Hebrews says, offer a sacrifice of praise, but he also says share. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice, hospitality. Bless those who curse you. Bless, uh, bless you those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who uh, mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone, evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes. Of everybody, as if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Move on to 1 Corinthians 13. Again, a passage we know you may have memorized it. Not the whole chapter, but listen to the description. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You know, we like to do that sometimes, you know. We like to keep score. Somebody offends us, you know, okay, that's one for you. Years ago when I was a pastor, there was somebody in the church that kind of got to where they didn't like me very much. And I will never forget the day when I sat down in their house and she brought out three single-spaced pages of everything over the last, I don't know how many years, that I had done that she didn't like. Love doesn't keep records of wrong. Love just lets it go. We don't bring that record back. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I'm actually, usually I use an iPad when I preach, but I'm going through too many passages and it, I found it's actually slower using technology. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, good thing to remember fruit of the Spirit, what I'm talking about is not something that we are capable of doing naturally, it is supernatural. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Go over to Philippians. I like this one. And I will probably let this be my last one. There are so many more, but we, we would be here a long, long time. Chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, here it goes, by being like-minded, having the same love for one another, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should not look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. I could go on. There are so many more. And I would encourage you to take the time to go through some of the other references. I will wrap it up in 1 John, though. Kind of come full circle. 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. See, they did get it eventually. They just, I don't think, understood it the night of the Lord's Supper. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but in actions and in truth. And then if you skip over to chapter 4, verse 16, about halfway through the verse God is love whoever lives in love lives in God and God is in him love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him skip down to verse 19 we love because he first loved us if anyone says I love God yet hates his brother he is a liar For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. First of all, love is not optional. It is part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Two, love is distinctive. It's not merely words. It's not merely fuzzy feelings. It's not just saying, I love you. In the body of Christ, love is real and tangible, or at least it should be. The intent and the attitude of every one of us should be not what's in it for me here at Grace Redeemer, but how can I love and minister to everyone else here? How can I use what God has done in my life to touch you, to encourage you, to lift you up? What can I do? How can I help? How can I reach out? the third observation I want to make from that original passage John 13 Jesus said by this all will know that you are my disciples in that you have love for one another Jesus said people are not going to know you because you have been baptized when I first became a Christian I was very effusive in in my faith, maybe almost annoyingly so, and I wore this 90-pound cross around my neck. That's probably why I have back problems to this day. But I wore this huge cross around my neck so that everybody would know I was a Christian. I wore it for several years, and it, it actually had a very special place in my life just because uh, uh, at that time I, I grew up in the Episcopal Church and uh, there was a dear man in the church who, uh, when the church remodeled, they took out a wooden altar rail and he had taken the wood from that altar rail and, and made it into a cross. And that's partially why I wore it for years and years and years. Well, I say years and years and years, I mean probably from the time I was about 15 to when I was 18 or 19. <laughs> But when I was at Laterno College, I got involved in a uh, ministry to a nursing home. And we would go there and sing every week. And, and one day, there was this little little lady, and she could barely talk anymore, but as After the music program and after the message and all that, we were going around and visiting and shaking hands, and and she looked at my cross and she said, Oh, I love that cross. And I don't know what made me do it. And this is not to my credit. But I took it off and I gave it to her. Because at that moment it meant more to her than it did to me. See, love should be in action and in truth not just in word because by it everyone will know that we are his disciples and you say that's impossible we're just one little church in a huge country you could have said the same thing back in the first and second century We're just a bunch of little people in this huge Roman Empire. I want to read you something that was written by Bob Deffenbaugh in a message on this passage. Tertullian, who lived towards the end of the second century, said that the heathen said of believers, behold how these Christians love one another. Hmm. Hmm. Minucius Felix reports the comment of a heathen called, and I'm not sure how to say it, but Caecilius is what I'm going to guess. Caecilius said, they love one another almost before they know one another. The heathen, of course, were prejudiced against the Christians. They didn't like them at all and were ready to spread any slander about them. They ridiculed and opposed them. They put them in jail and executed them, but they were compelled to pay grudging tribute to Christian love. It was undeniable. We are living in an era and in a time in history when nastiness seems to be the word of the day. You can't even watch a political debate without comparing it to a Jerry Springer uh, reality show. And you see Christians on all sides, of the, all sides of the debate hurling insults at one another. Beloved, the world sees that. And it shapes their opinion. You see, we have a brand. Right now, sadly, in the United States, the evangelical brand isn't held very highly, except by political people who happen to want our votes. Now, I'm not getting into politics. I'm just saying, look at that. That's not the brand we want to project. So on your fourth anniversary, Grace Redeemer, my word of encouragement is love one another just as he loved us. Make that your brand. Set it as your goal and your heart that as people think of Grace Redeemer they will say, Behold how they love one another. Behold how they minister. Behold how they reach out. They love one another almost before they know each other. Because that's the image that Jesus assigned us. And that's the only brand
0: that is worth having. Let's pray. Gracious